We're celebrating the day of the Bible today. It's an emphasis of our Bible society that they encourage churches to take advantage of to promote Scripture, reading, memorizing, giving away everything. So there is a Bible table in the foyer this morning. If you need to pick up an extra Bible or if you just need a little gospel portion to give away to somebody, it's there and it's available. We'll talk about it more. But in line with this emphasis, we're living in complicated times, aren't we? Where are you going to find a safe refuge, a good source of wise counsel, and courage to keep going in the faith, if not in God's Word? God's Word is the source of all of that. And I hope that you're looking to God's Word to find it, to keep you on track. Wisdom can be defined as seeing ourselves and our world through God's eyes. But that ability is only activated when we come to acknowledge our need for God's presence in our lives and His Lordship over our lives. We need that urgently. And of course, Scripture is what bears witness to it. That Lordship that Jesus actually confirmed and demonstrated at the most difficult moment in His life, which was the cross. Well, wisdom is the fruit of responding with all our heart to God's call to live under his reign. That's what Jesus was doing at the cross as well. He was finishing the establishment of his reign on the earth. And that's why wisdom can never be separated from the cross because that's where Jesus established it definitively. You see, when that wisdom rules in our hearts, then it helps us to have the right response to all kinds of difficulties that we may have to face. From family problems to personal dilemmas, health crises, financial challenges, religious controversies, political turmoil, social instability, general upheaval, everything. We need wisdom to respond to the difficulties of this world, don't we? Folks, it's the Word of God. That's where we're going to find it. So I hope that you'll tune in with me this morning as we look at an Old Testament king who was very intent on growing in wisdom. His name was Hezekiah. We're going to look at the positive and the negative of his example. But his biblical reputation was well established. Second Kings tells us that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah either before or after him. So you see, he was well thought of, wasn't he? Even history confirms this king in his time frame. There's been an archaeological discovery in 2015 in the city of Jerusalem where a round seal dating to the 8th century B.C. was found. You have a little picture of it there. Inscribed with the name of King Hezekiah. It was his Seal, And they dated that seal exactly to the time frame of King Hezekiah. He reigned from 715 to 686 B.C. You know, this is true of so many characters in the Bible. Archaeology just confirms, yeah, the Bible's not making this up. This is not a legend. This is not a fairy tale. This is true history that the Bible was recording. 
and it's confirmed again and again. It's one of the best-kept secrets in the world because the world doesn't want people to know about it. Eh? But we Christians should be spreading the word. <laughs> Are you with me? Okay, you're a little slow this morning in reacting. So, <laughs> All right, let's keep going. As a young king, not as young as some who came to the throne of Judah because Hezekiah started at age 25. Some were even younger. But he felt the weight of responsibility for ruling this nation. It was scary. You know, kings and rulers need wisdom to govern, don't they? Okay, you're not sure about that, but uh, they do. And the problem is a lot of them don't know it. Yes? Yeah, yeah, we can identify with that one. Um, Hezekiah knew it. He realized how much he needed God's wisdom, so he sought it. You see, when Hezekiah came to the throne, the conditions he inherited in Judah were appalling. The temple doors had been closed. The temple had been shut down by his own father, King Ahaz. Wow. Besides that, idolatrous altars had been set up in every corner of the city. And the towns of Judah were full of sacred stones and Asherah poles and pagan altars, high places. King Hezekiah knew he was going to have to go against all of this. And it would not be easy to overcome what had become politically correct for a whole generation. You with me? Yeah, he knew it was going to be an uphill battle. But his resource was the Word of God. Especially... The writings of Solomon. Interesting. That was his great, 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 12 generations back, his ancestor. So how do we know there's a connection between Hezekiah and Solomon? You may be surprised if you haven't read the Proverbs closely lately. Proverbs 25, 1 actually tells us that these are more Proverbs of Solomon transcribed by the men of Hezekiah. See, he had a whole troop of scribes. And he put some of them to work with the Proverbs. You see, here was a monarch who valued God's word so much, he wanted it to impact his own life because he knew his nation needed it. He wanted the, the word of God to be able to restore unity among God's people. 1 Kings 4 32 tells us that Solomon spoke over 3,000 proverbs and had quite a few songs as well. Probably praise songs, do you think? Praise team? I bet Solomon had a few of those. And instrumentalists, maybe that could compare with our musicians. <laughs> they were using David's instruments. You remember what a musician David was, and he had invented a lot of instruments. Well, Let's do some math, all right? Proverbs 1 through 9 and Proverbs 10 through 24 give us 660-something proverbs. That's the first two sections. You see, the book is actually divided into sections, the first two sections. The next section, Proverbs 25 to 29, gives us 137 more proverbs, which gives us a total of 800. And you're saying, well, yeah, but what about... Proverbs 30 and 31, they're in there too. But they're attributed to other wise men, not to Solomon. All right? Okay, so 3,000 minus 800. Where are all the others? Aren't there a bunch missing? 
As a matter of fact, only a fraction of Solomon's Proverbs actually made the cut. You got it? Not even a third of them actually came to be included in the canon of Scripture. So Hezekiah was the one who singled out from those that still hadn't been brought in 137 of them to be included, and that's what Proverbs 25 through 29 includes, his selection of certain Proverbs to be brought into this compilation of Proverbs. So what were his criteria for picking these among all the thousands, a couple of thousands anyway? Well, I think we'll all agree that the primary element was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, we got that one clear, but what do you think the Holy Spirit used in Hezekiah? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't just manipulate us like robots, does he? He doesn't me. I don't think he does you either. I don't think he did Hezekiah either. I think the Holy Spirit was working with the spiritual yearnings in Hezekiah's heart. Because he had grown up in that godless environment, surrounded by it, seeing the things his father was doing. Maybe he was already an aficionado. Do we say that in English? Um, maybe he was already a fan of his great-great-great-grandfather's proverbs before he came to the throne. So when he had the power and had these scribes at his disposal, then he began to study and began to call Proverbs that needed to be included. The ones that resonated with him in a special way because of what he had lived and what he had observed. The Holy Spirit was guiding him and impressing him with relevant truth because of what he had lived through. So he collated these unclaimed treasures that came alive to him as God's word. And they were the ones that were going to help him govern in his kingdom. This alive quality of Scripture. All Christian Scripture shares in this alive quality. You remember Hebrews 4.12 teaches that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. There's something about Scripture. It's alive. Uh, Peter also wrote, about that imperishable seed of the Word of God that is living and enduring forever. You're observing the same thing. This alive factor is evident in the way Scripture impacts us. Not just in the case of Hezekiah. This is in every age. It's a timeless quality that Scripture has. And I'm wondering, have you discovered it for yourself? That is a, uh, not just a rhetorical question. <laughs> I'm hoping you will answer it. Have you discovered this alive quality about Scripture? Does it reach out and grab you sometimes in a special way? That's God speaking. It's His Word, and it's not just words on a page. It's alive. So that means these Proverbs should resonate in our hearts like they did in Hezekiah's. Hezekiah was recognizing the inspired quality of these Proverbs. So they became part of the, the motor of spiritual restoration that actually marked his reign. There's going to be revival in Hezekiah's reign. So we want to look at some of these Proverbs um, that caught his attention, why they were so relevant. The opening proverb in 
Proverbs 25, chapter, verse 2, shows us his desire and his passion to know the wisdom of God. Notice it says, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search it out. Reminds me of Colossians 2, 3, where the apostle Paul said that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, where? Somebody said it real gently, real timidly. In Christ. Don't be timid about that. Eh? All the treasures of knowledge and wisdom, wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Hidden. Why are they hidden? Well, because they're not they're right there on the surface. You can't just look over here. Oh, there's the wisdom on the chair. On the, it's not out in the open. It's an inner thing, isn't it? So if you're going to experience it, you've got to search it out. That's something that resonated with Hezekiah here. God conceals it, but it's, it's an honor to a king to search out that wisdom to be able to put it into practice. Or here's another one. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a ruling rightly given. Can you feel how that resonated with Hezekiah? Oh, he wanted to give right rulings. He didn't want to make mistakes in this heavy task that was his. Or how about this one? A little later in chapter 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Well, now that's counterintuitive, isn't it? It wouldn't have occurred to me to help my enemy, to be friendly and kind to my enemy. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? God himself makes the sunshine and the rain to fall on whom? The just and the unjust impartial, loving toward all. That's what Solomon understood, and he said it out in this proverb. In this, doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. I don't think Hezekiah is necessarily identifying with this. Good, I want to put heaps of coal on my enemies. I don't think that's what's supposed to motivate, motivate us. It's just an expression of how it's actually going to impact the enemy. Yeah, okay, how about this one? Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Think of the walled cities back in that time, how they were a protection for the city to keep enemies out. And once the walls were broken down, broken through, the enemy had access to the heart of the city, to everybody in it. And if you lack self-control, that's you. The enemy has access you can be contaminated, polluted, corrupted like that. Self-control. Where do we get it? Hope you're thinking the same thing I am. Fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus' Spirit in us who teaches us self-control. See, these are deep proverbs he's working through here. How about this next one? Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. For riches do not endure forever. And a crown is not secure for all generations. Aha. Something resonated there with Hezekiah. He realized that just because he was wearing a crown today didn't mean uh, tomorrow he would be wearing it. His riches, they're here today, gone tomorrow. Whatever you have, whatever God has put in your hands... Be a good steward. Know your flocks. 
Give attention to your herds. Whatever God has given you, be a good steward of it. How about this one? When a country is rebellious, it has many rulers, sort of like anarchy, but a ruler with discernment and knowledge maintains order. Can you hear Hezekiah's heartbeat speeding up on that one? Yes, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Or this next one. By justice, a king gives a country stability. But those who are greedy for bribes tear it down. You see where he's going here? Yeah, all right. Justice is the only way. And be careful. Anybody who's looking for a bribe, watch out. So all of these reflected Hezekiah's concern to rule the nation well, to follow faithful principles of government, to see God's work thriving because of a just king. All right, here's some more that have a little different twist. How about this one from chapter 28? If anyone turns a deaf ear to instruction, even their prayers are an abomination. You mean if I'm not teachable, my prayers are just empty words. Have we got it? That's deep wisdom. I need a teachable ear and a heart for my prayers to really connect and make any sense. All right? What about this one? Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. Trembling before God, that's talking about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? All right, don't fall into trouble. Tremble before the Lord. And those who trust in themselves, well, that's foolish, isn't it? But those who walk in wisdom will be delivered. Notice the contrast. These two don't go together. You can't trust in yourself and walk in wisdom. If you don't trust in yourself, whom are you going to trust in? All right, hope you're doing the math. And then that one continues. Those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. Uh-huh. God's concerned about the poor, Hezekiah says to himself. And even more so as he looks at the next one. The righteous care about justice for the poor. But the wicked have no such concern. All right, this is beginning to make an impact on Hezekiah. How about the next one? If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. These resonate with Hezekiah. How many of them reflect his concern for the underdogs, the underprivileged, the oppressed? He realizes this has got to be a major priority in his kingdom. He's got to learn carefully to distinguish between the wise and the foolish, between the righteous and the wicked. Because it's going to be the difference between those who will help build up the kingdom and those who would help tear it down. Have we got it? This is a wise ruler here. How does all that wisdom play out in his kingdom, in his daily affairs in the kingdom? Well, let's look at a little bit of Hezekiah's reign. What happens in the very first year of his reign? The reopening of the temple. The first month doesn't mean the first month he's reigning. He's probably been reigning for a few months. But the first month of the religious calendar of the Jewish year was Nisan. Not like the car, but it means something else. All right. Uh, that first month, he opened the doors of the temple. But what he discovered there was oof, a lot of filth. 
So they couldn't begin anything until he called together the priests and the Levites to instruct them in their duties of consecrating themselves and cleaning out the temple. It was defiled. It was full of junk, full of false worship. So began the process of cleansing all of that away. And 2 Kings 18 says he also removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, even breaking apart the bronze snake that Moses had made out in the desert. You, you remember that story? The bronze snake that he put up and it was to bring healing. They kept it as a relic and later began worshiping it, burning incense to it. Wow. So, so Hezekiah had no sentimental uh, attachment to that bronze snake. He said, if they're going to worship it, I'm going to destroy it. Threw it away. So this was such an important feature of Hezekiah's early reign, his desire to cleanse the land of idolatry and to reestablish God's right to rule over the nation. Does God have a right to rule over this church, over your family, over your finances? Huh? Getting a little too close there, aren't we? Yes. God has a right to rule over us right down into our pockets, into the bottom of our heart. Well, it was only a matter of 16 days. Uh-oh. 16 days. And those priest, priests had finished clearing out that temple, cleansing it, consecrating it, and they were ready to begin their, the ritual sacrifices as part of their duty. So Hezekiah immediately called all the people of Jerusalem together. Instructed the Levites to lead them in worship with the instruments, just as David had taught back in his day. So then they began to worship, sing, sacrifice, and feast together. Yeah, it was a big feast they celebrated. I wondered, did all of this celebration and this purification have anything to do with the Proverbs? Think about this one, Proverbs 25, 4 and 5. Remove the dross from the silver, and a silversmith can produce a vessel. Remove wicked officials from the king's presence, and his throne will be established through righteousness. You see the connection? Hezekiah made the connection. He knew that we needed, they needed to clear out all the junk in their lives, in their temple, in their nation. So next came the decision to celebrate Passover. Actually, Nisan was the Passover month, but they weren't ready during Nisan. So they just decided to do it a month later. The king and his officials, they all came to this decision. They would go ahead and celebrate it even if they were a month late. They hadn't been able to when it was supposed to be done because they didn't have enough priests consecrated, so they didn't assemble the people. So in preparation for this late celebration of Passover, Hezekiah sent messengers to call all the people of Judah and Israel. Sent messengers from all the way to the south in Beersheba, all the way to the north in Dan, to come and celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem with their brothers and sisters of Judah. That This was their common heritage. And why should they not all come and be a part of this? Oh, what a vision this man had. Twelve generations after 
the separation took place between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. He still felt God's ideal in his heart. This is one people. We should all be worshiping together. So he wrote letters and sent these couriers all over Israel to invite people to come be a part of this special celebration of Passover. Well, the response was quite varied. Uh, some of the messenger, messengers were actually scorned and ridiculed by the Israelites. But others just responded amazingly from the tribe of Asher and Manasseh and Ephraim and Issachar and Zebulun. There were people who were actually very hungry for this message. And they said, yes, they humbled themselves and prepared to take on that journey to Jerusalem. And when they got there, how do you think these northern kingdom visitors were received? Open arms. Open arms. They hadn't cleansed themselves properly, according to the temple law. But when the king found out they'd responded, he prayed for them and said, God, just receive them anyway. God said, yes, they were received. Wow. Even though they were a month late with this Passover, all these ritually unclean people were going to participate. What they realized was that hearts turning to God were more important to him than the letter of the law. Does this sound like Jesus? I hope it does. That's what was happening. Hearts turning to God are what really matter to God. I hope we're hearing that message this morning. A heart that is willing to humble itself and come to him as the true owner. The rejoicing in Jerusalem was absolutely out of this world. A whole week, seven days, as was prescribed, they celebrated, they feasted, they banqueted, they enjoyed fellowship, even with their separated brothers and sisters who had come from far away. It was so good, they said, we can't stop. <laughs> we got to keep going. And it was a unanimous decision. We're going to celebrate for another seven days. Can you imagine? Hezekiah himself donated thousands of sheep and goats for sacrifice and for feeding the crowds. <laughs> These people had to eat. Well, what do you think happened then? Hezekiah's officials followed suit. You see, generosity begets more of the same. When Hezekiah's officials saw him doing that. They said, oh, well, well, we can also contribute. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Yeah, okay, you're with me. They were having revival right there in the Old Testament. The whole country was affected by this. Even the neighboring kingdom to the north, the separated ones, they were also impacted. In fact, mm, the joy was greater than anything they'd seen in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon. That's what the chronicler includes in his report. More joy than they had seen in 12 generations. Wow. In fact, there was also, after this celebration was over, even more eagerness to go out and get rid of the idols, tear down those pagan altars. And when the call went out for the collection of the tithes, the response was overwhelming. Hezekiah ordered the people living in Jerusalem 
to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites so that they could devote themselves to their responsibilities. And it wasn't just the people of Jerusalem who responded. It was the Israelites as well as all the people of Judah. They began to give generously the first fruits of their grain, the new wine, the olive oil, the honey, all that the fields produced. They brought a tithe of everything. And you see, this tithing was also the fruit of hearts being revived. Because when I live under the Lord's rule, nothing that I have is mine. It's all His. So it doesn't hurt me to pull out a tenth. I know it's an Old Testament law. In the New Testament, the law is go the second mile, okay? <laughs> if you want a law for it. In the New Testament, the rule is the Lord loves a generous, mm, cheerful giver. <laughs> There's the word. Well, this was also evidence of the revival that was going on in their hearts. Mm. In fact, the chronicler sums up with this testimony regarding Hezekiah. This is what he did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God in everything he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands. He sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. Wisdom having its effect on the king and on the kingdom. Do we get it? Are you getting hungry for more of God's wisdom in your life? That's where you're supposed to be moving, according to this sermon, if you're following the, 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 the guideline, the guion, as we say in Spanish. Okay, what do you think is going to happen next? Oh, you weren't ready for that? Think about it. Everything's going great. They're really at the top of the mountain. Everybody's rejoicing. What do you think is going to happen next? You got it this time? Yeah. Wisdom needs to be put to the test, doesn't it? So Hezekiah's got an enemy invasion on his hand and a midlife health crisis. And if you're thinking... Wait a minute. This is not fair. After all of Hezekiah's good works, why would the Lord treat him that way? Uh -huh. Is that what you're thinking? There is no biblical wisdom in that kind of thinking. None. We are not exempt, are we, from the things that happen in this fallen world. We are not. At some point... There's going to come a blow and you say, where did that come from? I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. Why did I get that? It's not what it's about in this world. Remember our Savior. He didn't deserve anything of what he got. And he says, the disciple is not greater than his master. Are we disciples of Jesus Christ? Then what do we have to expect? We have to expect that he's going to be with us. All right, let's keep going. Um, this midlife crisis is twofold. First of all, the invasion by the Assyrians, and later that life-threatening personal illness. So the Assyrian siege was especially strategic because instead of launching a military assault, those Assyrians focused on a propaganda campaign. Doesn't that sound modern? How did they know to, that, to do that? Just human psychology. 
they started trying to undermine the morale of the people. They cast doubt on Hezekiah's convictions. They claimed divine authority for their own mission to come and conquer Judah. And then they began to ridicule the God of heaven, saying, "Eh, he's not going to save you. He can't save you. Look at all these other peoples that have been conquered. Their gods couldn't save them. So Hezekiah, he trembled, but he turned to God and his word. He found the guidance and strength he needed. He went to the people, encouraged them to trust in the Lord because God's power and strength are greater than anything the Assyrian forces ever imagined. Oh, he got brave all of a sudden, didn't he? Yeah, he remembered who his God was. Wisdom came forth. So when King Sennacherib, that was the Assyrian king, when his messenger delivered a threatening letter to Hezekiah, and it was really terrible, threatening, all kinds of terrible stuff. What do you think Hezekiah did with that letter? If you remember the story, it's right there in the Bible. He took it to the temple and he spread it out before the Lord. (laughs) He said, Lord, the battle is yours. This, This problem is yours. Wasn't that a good example for you and me? He spread that letter out before the Lord in the temple and he prayed over it. Do we get his example? Do we get it right here? Is it resonating with you? The Lord's answer came pretty quickly through the prophet Isaiah. And the Lord said that Sennacherib would never even enter the city, would not even shoot an arrow there. And then a bunch more things that Isaiah heard from the Lord. And that very night, the angel of the Lord wiped out 185,000 of the Assyrian troops. Sennacherib, humiliated, frightened, went scurrying back to his own country and was later, some years later, assassinated. But he wasn't assassinated until he had managed to leave Sennacherib's prism, it's called. A clay prism. It's, It's actually an ancient artifact from the... 7th century B.C. Describing all of Sennacherib's tremendous exploits, and of course, it really builds him up. You know it's propaganda. Mm, But at the same time, it does mention and confirm data from Scripture that he was there, that he invaded Judah about this time, that he mm, put a siege on the city of Lachish, And that he was not able to conquer Jerusalem. Wow. All of that is right there on that prism. It's an artifact from the 7th century. Confirming again the reliability of scripture. Scripture gets it right in these historical details. And it gets it right in the spiritual details of your life and mine. Why do we not turn to it more consistently? Meanwhile, Hezekiah had another battle on his hands. His health began to fail. Due to this infectious boil that he had. And the prophet Isaiah, who had brought him so much good news previously, 
this time came to him and told him to put his house in order because he was not going to recovery, recover. How would you like to receive that news? Well, Hezekiah took it pretty hard, took it pretty badly, turned over in his bed and began to weep and to pour out his soul before the Lord in prayer. The Lord heard him and promised to add 15 more years to his life. Now, listen carefully. You and I should not take that as a guarantee that the Lord will do the same in your case or mine. Do we understand that? It's not necessarily a promise for you that the same thing is going to be done in your case. No, it's not. I mean, you can try. You can ask. <laughs> Never hurts to ask, right? Let's talk about those 15 years extra that Hezekiah had. In those 15 years, Hezekiah engendered a son who would be the worst king Judah ever had in all its history. Are you picking up on this? The boy was 12 years old when Hezekiah died. And the boy proceeded to follow the ways of his grandfather, Ahaz, and lead the country right back into idolatry and paganism. Oh, Hezekiah would have turned over in his grave if he knew it. What happened? Did he not spend enough quality time with that lad instructing his heart in the fear of the Lord, in the wisdom of Scripture? We cannot know. We cannot speculate. We who are fathers just sort of feel that in our hearts. Oh, I wonder if that's what happened. It's tragic. It wasn't the only thing that happened. Also, during this time, he would receive envoys from Babel, the Babylon who came to congratulate him on his recovery. They may have also been spies, you know. But Hezekiah proceeded to open all his storehouses and his palace and show them everything, all his treasures. Why did Hezekiah feel the need to be so transparent with these people who came from that pagan kingdom? Was it a problem of pride? Was it childish innocence? What happened? Because... Later, the prophet Isaiah would come to tell him that his actions had been quite prophetic of what was to come because all those treasures would indeed be carried off to Babylon in the future, about a hundred years down the road. But when Hezekiah heard that it was for future generations, not his own, he was content. He was content that his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren might have to face that. Uh, are we going to end this sermon on a negative note? No, just a warning. For me, in old age, don't think you've got all the wisdom you need. The older you get, don't think, oh, now I can relax, I can coast. Oh, boy, it hits me right there. I've got to keep seeking the Lord. 
his wisdom for this time in my life. He says so clearly, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. No matter what stage of life you're in, it's foolish to trust the flesh. He who walks wisely shall be delivered. Walking wisely is trusting the Lord. To walk wisely is to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So that's my question to you this morning. Are you trusting yourself to get you by? Or are you seeking the Lord to live under his rule? He's the only trustworthy ruler. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, oh, how we praise you for the wonderful kingdom that you established in your earthly life. Your kingly rule, which never failed throughout your 33 plus years. Even though you were killed in such awful injustice, you did not stop reigning, loving God with your whole heart, loving your fellow man as yourself. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to live under that rule by faith in your name. Help us be lifted up in our lives, Lord Jesus, that we may see your worthiness and be drawn to you. And we pray it all in your precious name.